Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Men Behaving Badly edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. This week on the show, the last American hostage held by ISIS has been killed. How did we get here and what happens next? A prominent national security conference is shaping up to be one big sausage fest. And the president is asking Congress for a new authorization to use military force against ISIS. Plus, in our object lesson segments, your television is listening to you. Be careful what you say. I'm joined as always. <laughs> that's, the, that's the voice of your television. That's My right, television is, is smarter than your television. This is a smart TV. They call it a smart TV. It was a very dumb policy, but we're going to get to that. Uh, I am joined as always by my friends uh, Ben Wittes, who you just heard. Hello, Ben. Whoa. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Scary voice uh, over uh, uh, voiceover guy and podcast impresario. Ben just launched a new podcast this week on which you will never hear him speak again. Yay. Woo! Yeah, it's because you hear me too much on rational security, so I promise other than the first intro on the chess clock debates, you will never hear my voice on it again. But you should listen to the chess clock debates because if I do say so myself, it is pretty awesome. It is really good. I was very, very uh, impressed and happy that it came out. So it's a great debate this week on whether marriage can be saved. Um, so check out the chest clock debates. Uh, and I'm joined also, as always, by Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, soon to be Globetrotter. Hi, Tamara. Hi, Shane. Where are you going? Where are you? Going? We're going to lose you next week and the week after. Yes, for two <coughs> whole weeks you will have to suffer my absence, and I apologize. But I am. Heading off to Israel to get a first-hand look at the election campaign there, and also to uh, dialogue on national security and international security at the Institute for National Security Studies annual conference. And then I'm going off to Brussels for a transatlantic dialogue on There's how to dialoguing to... going on on this trip. Yes, you know we're all about dialogue yeah. here at the Brookings Institution and boondoggling. <laughs> Yes, two great cities with great food and totally. much better weather. God, I'm jealous. Uh, okay, well, we will look forward to your dispatches from that uh, when you get back, and uh, we will have some surprise guests in the next couple of weeks uh, filling in for tomorrow as she's off dialoguing. So uh, let's start with our uh, uh, wordplay segment. Um, ben, let's go to you first. This week, President Obama asked Congress for a new authorization to use military force against ISIS. This has been some time coming. Why did he do it? Did he actually need one? What will it let him do? Fill us in. Well, uh, short answer, why did he do it? I'm not sure. Uh, will it, Does he really need it? Apparently not. And what will it really do? Who knows? Uh, so let's backtrack and go over this. Um, the president has been conducting military operations against the Islamic State for a number of months now. He has contended that he has all the authority uh, legally that he needs to do that by dint of the 2001 AUMF. A lot of members of Congress are not thrilled about that argument, uh, and a lot of uh, scholarly criticism has followed it as well. Um, 
Uh, and the president has always made clear, remember, that this is a president who insists and certainly thinks of himself as somebody who's pretty sparing about the use of executive power. Um, he's always insisted that he welcomes Congress getting more involved and passing a clearer authorization for this conflict. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he has not previously come forward and beyond saying that he welcomes Congress's involvement, actually proposed anything. So in the State of the Union, he said he was going to do it, and this week he actually did. And it's fair to say that the initial reaction to this uh, from pretty much across the political spectrum has been uh, thanks, but uh, we don't like it. And by and large, you can't make anyone happy. You can't make anyone happy. And 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 this, I think, was not a particularly sincere effort to make anybody happy. Mm. Um, you know, Republicans are upset by it because it has all these kind of, from their point of view, half-hearted statements of commitment to fighting ISIL. So, for example, it says, you know use force against ISIL, but not any enduring uh, offensive ground operations. Uh, it has a, uh, at the urging of you know, people like me, it has a sunset provision. Uh, and it does, is not accompanied by uh, what a lot of Republicans seem to want, which is a very clear articulation of what the strategy is. You know, um, on the other hand, Democrats are upset with it because the limitations that it has are uh, relatively anemic. Um, and so one of them is this limitation on ground forces, but it limits only enduring offensive ground forces, implying that you could use anything that's not enduring or offensive. Uh, like, say, special forces. Like special forces operations, like rescue stuff. Like, I think you could probably do... Uh, you know, if if you wanted to liberate a city and then turn it over to the Peshmerga, I'm not sure that this would be, this would, you could certainly interpret this to authorize Because it's that. not enduring. Because it's not enduring, right? And and enduring, you know, raises the question of how enduring and well, has, for how and Has long. enduring been used in a context of an AUMF like this before? Well, it seems it, a very fungible term designed mm -hmm. to be squishy. Generally speaking, as uh, UMF do not tend to contain, contain limitations. They tend to contain permissions. And you generally leave the limitations to the policy level. Um, so, you know, the Democrats are also upset by uh, the broad definition of associated forces, which is really quite broad. Um, and then the fact that while this document repeals the 2002 Iraq AUMF, it doesn't reform in any way the 2001 Al-Qaeda AUMF. And that means that, uh, and a lot of people, not just the left, but you know, uh, Jack Goldsmith this morning wrote in criticism of this, that means that it actually contains no limitations. Because since the president claims all the authority he needs under the existing law, if you don't supersede that law, repeal, or even sunset that law, you really have only added additional authority, not curtailed or, uh, or limited the authority particularly. So I think the, um, the good news here um, is that the president has actually come forward and put together a discussion draft, and that is valuable because it will force a discussion. 
um, and it'll force a legislative discussion that isn't missing the president's voice. Uh, on the it's, other, on the other hand, just to finish, um, it's not a draft that has has made anybody happy, and I don't think it's a draft that's likely to make anybody happy. Uh, and I suspect if one, if an if an amendment, if a AUMF passes, it will be one that has been significantly amended from this. Is this also, I mean, one of the things that's notable about this to me is that the White House actually is proposing language, um, which, you know, if you look across their six-year record of relations with Congress on important issues, domestic and international, they've very rarely done. So what explains why they ultimately did not follow the approach they've followed in every other case and just let members of Congress fight this out? So that's really an interesting point, because the criticism they get on, on AUMF subjects is exactly the opposite, right, which is that they didn't propose language earlier. Typically, AUMF UMF come from the White House, get sent to Congress, and get passed. Uh, they're exercises of presidential leadership in which the president tells Congress what he needs. Congress tells him, okay, here's how much of it you can have. And... You're right. This president has a way legislatively of, uh, to coin a phrase, leading from behind, right? Sorry. He says kind of what the broad objective is and then lets, you know, in healthcare, kind of lets Nancy Pelosi take the lead or, um, you know, he kind of follows uh, having set a broad outcome agenda, follows a legislative process. And the trouble is that that just doesn't work in the national security context where, you know, it is not really that much of a shared responsibility. The president, when he's saying, I want to use military force abroad, does have a sort of obligation to Congress to say, hey, here's what I want to use it for and here's the authorization that I need. And so I think in this case, the question is the opposite of the one that you asked which is, why did it take him so long to produce a draft? But you're right, if you look at it in the non-national security context, it's notable for exactly the opposite reason. I feel like this is a very cynical play by the president. Yes. Um, And he did not want to put an AUMF out in the first place. He kept saying to Congress, give me this authorization. They kept saying to him, why don't you propose something? I think you're right, he is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. It stands to reason that he would be the one to request the authorization, particularly if Congress was inviting him to do so, this is going to take weeks, probably months. It'll get hashed out. It'll get debated. All this time, airstrikes will continue in Syria and Iraq. If the president deems that there's any kind of reason to put in special forces, even in a non-enduring way, I presume he has the authority. He certainly thinks he has the authority to do that with the 2001 AUMF. So is this just really like an act of cynical theater, ultimately? Mm, You know... I I don't think it's just cynical theater, although it may be theater from a sort of legislative or legal perspective for all the reasons, Ben, that I think you laid out and Shane that you just noted. But politically, it's significant, both domestically and in the the Middle East where this anti-ISIS struggle is taking place. Politically at home, because this is an issue on which Republicans themselves are quite divided. And so by putting out his own language and pushing for a particular vision, he can exacerbate those divisions. 
Um, even though his own party isn't united, I think it's fair to say Republicans in Congress are more divided on this. So it's advantageous. Uh, but in the region, this is really important. And I can tell you from talking to government officials and um, other observers and, uh, and analysts out in the Arab world, they felt like President Obama was so slow to come around on the need to use military force um, in in Syria, they feel like he still hasn't come around, but at least on anti-ISIS, they finally got what they wanted. But their big question from the beginning has been about American commitment. And without an AUMF that is directly targeted at this problem, they worry that he could uh, declare victory or that the next president could just walk away from this fight. So, And I think the White House has even said this um, in some of their public statements, or at least hinted at it, that part of the audience for this is in the region to mm-hmm. demonstrate American resolve and staying power. And you think they're going to buy that? I mean, they'll, say, they'll, they'll look at an AUMF and they'll say they're debating this in the United States, they're committed. But I mean, does anybody really think we're, we're not going to ground forces, right? I mean, we all know where this goes. It's just more airstrikes. Well, number one, he didn't rule them out. And so, you know, those those in the region who would like to see the U.S. get deeper into this can live in hope because they're not ruled out. Um, more than that, I think it's not that, that they'll see the American people debating this and feel good about it. They want to see it passed. Until it's passed, they're going to be anxious. Um, but I think the real issue is that they feel like in various ways they have all clearly identified the enemy. Now, they haven't all identified it in the same way we would, uh, but they've all labeled it, and we haven't done that in a formal sense yet. That's kind of what this AUMF does. Um, I, there's one other thing I would note on the politics and the symbolism, which is going to the point about enduring ground forces. I mean, as you said, Ben, this is probably meaningless from a practical perspective, but it is, don't you think it's just intended as a reassuring signal to the American people? Hey, I'm not getting you into another long war. I'll well, do whatever I want, but don't worry, it's not going to be a long war. Well, so I, I do think there is a very cynical dimension to this, and it has to do with Obama's self-presentation relative to his political needs. Um, so the problem, and, and I, I don't disagree with your discussion of the, the re, you know the way it plays in the region. Um, but an AUMF is a legal document, and the question here is how do you present yourself particularly given that a year and a half ago you stood up in front of the country at the National Defense University and wagged your finger and said, this war, like all wars, must end, and I'm not going to expand the mandate of the AUMF, and I will not... But that was a different war. This is a new war. It's a whole new game. Well, except that it isn't, because the legal theory under which you've been prosecuting this war is that very AUMF that you've said must be refined or repealed and certainly shouldn't be aggrandized. So now you uh, have said you won't sign anything that aggrandizes it. You want to work to refine and repeal it, but you're interpreting it in a fashion that the prior administration would never have dreamed of in its grandiosity and breadth. And so you've got a real hypocrisy problem here, and the way you resolve it is you propose an AUMF that is limited to ISIL, uh, broad in its authority, 
but apparently narrow, as in it contains all these limitations that are operationally not real limitations. And uh, you continue to say that you are committed, as he said in the transmittal letter yesterday, to refining and ultimately repealing the prior AUMF, but you don't take any steps to actually do that. And so what you effectively do is aggrandize presidential war-making power, but you do it all while describing yourself as limiting it. And it is very cynical, and I think the chief audience for it is domestic and even his own personal psychodrama. Um, so, personal psychodrama. Yeah, I like that. Maybe we'll that. Obama on the couch. Obama on the couch? Yeah. Is that your next book? No, no, I think my next book is going to be uh, interviewing Frank Underwood about his national security priorities. Well, probably a lot more interesting yeah. than interviewing Barack I'd rather Obama. be in Frank Underwood's boudoir than in Who? President Obama's yeah. brain. Who wouldn't? Anytime. <laughs> um, did you notice, by the way, that House of Cards season three was accidentally uploaded to the internet yesterday? Do you like really think months? that was an an accident or a on purpose accident? I think it was an accident. I think it was the North Koreans. <laughs> <laughs> it was quickly taken down. So maybe the North Koreans. Kim Jong Un wanted to like you know get grab his copy really quick. I'm now sure. we're all salivating. Um, we're going to stay on ISIS F for a minute, and I'm actually going to go to my wordplay. Uh, which is, uh, so this week, uh, family members of Kayla Mueller, who is the 26-year-old aid worker who had been kidnapped by ISIS and held in Syria since 2013, along with U.S. officials, confirmed that she had died while she was in ISIS custody. Um, there have been a lot of questions about where she was, would she, would she be put in a video? We talked about this on the podcast a number of times, that if she were ever shown in a beheading video, what would that do to the domestic political discussion about ISIS, which we've just been talking about in the context of the AUMF. Um, but what happened was ISIS released uh, to the family some photographs showing that she died. The intelligence community confirmed them. Um, my wordplay, though, is this letter that um, Kayla had smuggled out, I guess, maybe smuggled is too strong a word, but sent with some European hostages, I believe, that had been released from her prison that were sent, was sent back to the family. Uh, and the family decided to release this week. And what's fascinating to me about the letter and how it has sort of now kind of changed and shaped the conversation around not just her but around other hostages is it shows extraordinary resolve on her part. Uh, it shows that her Christian faith was guiding her very strongly while she was in prison. She felt terrible about what she was putting her family through. Um, also, though, it had this line that I thought was just fascinating where she said she did not want the burden of negotiating for her release to fall to her parents and seem to imply, leave that to other people. I don't want you to get involved in this. Um, a lot of questions have been coming out about how likely was it that she would have been released? Were there negotiations? We reported this week at the Daily Beast that the family had actually sent a letter to President Obama asking him to commute the sentence of Afia Siddiqui, who was an al-Qaeda operative who's serving an 86-year prison sentence in Texas and who um, actually ISIS had demanded be released for Kayla. So it's kind of reset. I don't know if reset is too strong of a word, but everyone is now seeing this you know, very brave, you know, resolved, committed, very impassionate, young, um, maybe a little bit naive, but like in that way that we all are when we're that age and, and spirited and really believe in what we're doing. And that has kind of put this very sort of uh, ugly debate around what to do about ISIS, it kind of put a strange positive kind of note in this where you look at this one person who, even in the face of possibly certain demise, kind of 
had this level of resolve. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it leaves me with a lot of mixed emotions about what happens now with regards to hostages going forward because there are no Americans being held by ISIS anymore. So there's maybe really no, until another one is taken, discussion about what we should be doing to negotiate for their release, or should we be paying ransoms, or should parents be writing and asking the president to commute prison sentences. Um, it was just a very unexpected note for this kind of horrible drama that's been going out since August um, to go down on, and, I, and leaves us with a lot of good feelings about Kayla, but also, me anyway, just a lot of unanswered questions about how we should be negotiating for hostage release and what we should be doing. Well, if we should be negotiating. I mean, to me, what's striking about it is that the the news came out and the the kind of media framing of her story came out not on ISIS's terms. And this is actually right. the first time that that's happened. Great point. With the two American hostages who were beheaded on video last summer that helped drive public opinion in support of Obama's decision to begin airstrikes, the Jordanian pilot in the horrific, uh, but as you noted in our last episode, highly produced ISIS video that was released. You know, this is one where her family and she, through this amazing letter that, that her family chose to not just release, but really push out and ask everyone to read, they got to define her experience and her story. And so the image that, that comes forward is one of resolve, but that's partly because ISIS didn't get to put her up there shaking with fear, reciting some dictated confession. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, that was a, a tremendously powerful reversal of fortune in terms of how, uh, how these hostages are perceived. And I think it helps and I would imagine that the U.S. government would be grateful, deeply grateful for this, it helps increase the resilience of the American public as it confronts the possibility of additional hostages or downed pilots or, God forbid, you know, anything like that. So that the debate over um, negotiating for release came out of a sense of fear and terror for what these people were experiencing, and now the government kind of gets the pressure off. Yeah. Do we have a sense uh, in real terms, other than in ISIL propaganda terms, of how she died? I don't. The, the quick answer to that is no. But it seems to be changing a little bit by the day. So the, when ISIS came out and said that she had been killed last week, they said it was the result of a Jordanian airstrike. Yeah, nice taken, try. Yeah, exactly. Taken in revenge for the killing, the burning alive of, um, of, of Kasespa. And I think everyone quickly rejected that. I mean, the Jordanians I talked to within 10 minutes of the video being up were rejecting this. Or sorry, within 10 minutes of the news coming out about Kayla. Um, and it didn't make any sense. It was all too convenient. How would they know on the ground what it was a Jordanian plane versus an American plane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In subsequent days, there's been a little bit of shifting of facts about whether or not these targets that ISIS said were bombed were in fact bombed. It now appears that they were hit around the time that they claimed that she was there. It still doesn't necessarily add up that she would be there and there would be no other civilian casualties, although now we know that the place where she was alleged to have been held was a place, it sounds like, where ISIS had held hostages before. So, I mean, I continue to maintain and believe that she died some other way. I don't know if they killed her. I don't know if she got sick. They did release, ISIS did release, we know, to the families, photographs of her uh, in a burial shroud 
and trying, I guess, to convey the message that she was being respectfully treated, which doesn't line up with them having, you know, murdered her. Uh, but it was just all too convenient for them to say she was killed in airstrike. It would be in the in the playbook of ISIS that she had died possibly weeks ago, and they were simply waiting for the right time to mm-hmm. publicly reveal her death and pin it on someone for politically convenient purposes. Um, but it, it's a big un- question. I don't know if it's ever actually going to be answered. And <clears throat> what's also been interesting is in the past couple of days, a lot of rumors and speculation have been flying out about what was actually happening to her when she was in captivity. Uh, that the family has really been pushing back hard against since it was the government. The biggest one probably being that she was given over to an ISIS fighter as a bride. And even our sources who we talked to on that and the British government who had been monitoring this have been actually been playing quite an interesting role in these um, rescue attempts thought that was silly, that they just didn't see any evidence for that. Mm-hmm. So I, it may be that you know the, the death of Kayla Mueller continues to be a great mystery for a long time. But ISIS seems to be clearly using it for their purposes in, in, in a weird way, and I don't mean this to come out sounding like I am in any way moving over to an ISIS position here, but like they oddly presented a more humanitarian side in this in their weird, twisted way. You know, the family came out and communicated publicly to them after they said that she was dead and said, get in contact with us on another channel, you know how to reach us. And then apparently is when they sent the photographs confirming her death. Hmm. And they could have simply let the family just twist and never right. confirmed it. Although I think there's a convenience factor to them too here. You have pointed out in prior episodes that holding a female... Uh, hostage is awkward for them and you know they have not paraded her on videos the way they have with the others and she uh, said in her letter that she was being very well treated right so I, I think there's which maybe she said that under pressure but I, but I think there's a you know there's an awkwardness to it for them right and you don't want to let her go because that shows weakness and softness that you know is not the image that they want to project and probably not consistent with their sadistic barbarism. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also don't want the negative blowback of murdering her. And so this is a very convenient way to do it. Somebody else you claim is responsible for her death and you've treated her respectfully both in life and in death and been sensitive to the family. Right, exactly. Um, Now, of course, you know, you made the point, Shane, that as far as we know, there are no other American hostages. One would hope that um, the publicity around the fate of people who went into Syria to try and provide humanitarian support or be journalists or whatever has dissuaded others from following that path. So this does, in a sense, loosen any constraints the United States might have felt in carrying out a campaign if it feared that it might harm its own hostages. But what do we know about other nationals? Right. Well, we know that there. Well, we should also add that there are there are other Americans held in Syria and believed to be in Afghanistan. They're just not held by ISIS. So Austin Tice, who's a journalist over there. The latest that we have on him is he may be being held by the Assad regime. There's a lot of conflicting information about that. And there are um, uh, uh, three other Americans uh, uh, being held by the Haqqani network that we know of. In those cases, it's probably better for them insofar as the Haqqani network we know from 
messages that have come out want to get rid of these Americans by a negotiation. I don't think they're interested in killing them. And Austin Tice, we don't know, but he presumed to be alive. So <clears throat> if you're with ISIS, you're sort of doomed, and maybe there's hope with the other ones. The other nationals, I don't. There's one more British hostage, I believe, John Cantile, who's being held by ISIS. He's the individual who they've been putting in their own propaganda videos, sort of turning him into this bizarre kind of newscaster where they make him come out and give updates on what's happening in Raqqa and talk to people about how great ISIS is. He said recently that he will be making it, that the last video he was in is his last. Um, I know the British government has been looking, obviously, for him as well. Uh, I don't know how many Europeans are left with ISIS, but generally if you come from a country that will pay ransom, you've gotten out. Mm -hmm. That's sort of been the trend. But, you know, the, I guess the lesson, the question, the big question I have here now is, when the next American gets taken by ISIS or someone else, and someone else is going to get taken, or for the case of the people who are still left there, what has the administration actually learned and changed about the way that it goes about trying to rescue them, trying to negotiate them, to get them out? Because there's been just tremendous criticism from the families, from members of Congress, from former officials, that we don't have a coordinated strategy for how to marshal all of the elements of national power to get them out. Boy, you know, I, th I think we, c we can hear that criticism echoed not just with respect to the specific issue, but on a lot of national security issues. There are criticisms that the government doesn't do a good enough job of marshalling all the instruments of national power or producing a coherent and coordinated strategy. Um, so, you know, I, but I also have to wonder, because of the, 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 the various constituencies around this issue and, and the understandably um, heated emotions, how much of this is a policy problem, the lack of a strategy or the inability to marshal instruments of power, and how much of it is a communications problem? Well, yeah. and, 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 and how much of it is that the administration and the families have different policy objectives? Sure. I mean, from the family's point of view, you want to marshal all elements of national power to get the hostages out. From the administration's point of view, you may want to uh, muster all elements of national power to degrade and defeat ISIS. Right. Um, but and, and you don't want to do anything that's going to, you know, encourage the kidnapping of the many Americans that are in Yemen or, right. you know, in other places. And you don't want to... Um, and there may be a lot of things that the families would consider completely appropriate um, actions to take to secure their one and quite narrow policy objective, though incredibly compelling, that to the extent that you have a bigger picture in mind, you may be very loath to contemplate. And, yeah. and so I'm not sure how much of it is just... Sure, but as the administration has tried to make that argument publicly, they get slammed for it. Right. But so it may be it may be legitimate, but they just can't make that argument. But that's sort of like you know believing in a carbon tax, right? I mean, the f the fact that it's politically completely unacceptable doesn't mean it's bad policy. <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of things that you know if you if you ask on the merits, is it a good idea? Uh, the answer is yes. And if you talk about it in the political context, the answer is. Uh, you're not even allowed to, to say it. And, uh, and the distance between the Beltway and the rest of the country. Yeah, it's vast. It's vast. Um, okay, uh, let's move on to tomorrow's uh, wordplay. So the venerable Aspen Security Forum 
the Davos of national security pros. Ooh, that's a rather grandiose description. Yeah. Well, Aspen's pretty nice. Though. Aspen in the summer is particularly super, nice. Super nice. Um, it is only five short months away, and already the Aspen Institute has put out its list of confirmed speakers, and they are all dudes. Tell us about it. Sure. Well, so this is um, one of several very high-profile um, events, uh, extravaganzas that the Aspen Institute hosts at its glorious campus in it Aspen, is Colorado. It is, and they they use this campus for a variety of amazing meetings, large and small, and and all of them have value, um, including the Aspen Security Forum. <clears throat> but the Aspen Security Forum. Um, w describes itself as an annual summer gathering of top-level current and former government officials from all relevant national security agencies, industry leaders, thinkers, journalists, and concerned citizens. And it, it is striking um, that none of those currents or formers or leaders or thinkers or journalists or even low the concerned citizens, none of them seem to have lady parts. Um, we have uh, the list of 19 confirmed speakers for this summer's event, which you would assume these are the first people Aspen invited, the people they most wanted to book for the conference. And it seems as though they didn't, even if they've invited some women, they clearly didn't prioritize them enough uh, to get them out in their first list of confirmed speakers. So we have. James Clapper, the director of national intelligence, fantastic, yeah. a wonderful choice. I could think of a number of senior women in senior foreign uh, national security positions. Lisa Monaco, Susan Rice, Samantha Power of Real Haynes. This is not hard. Yes, this is not hard. In fact, <laughs> at a time when there are more women in positions of senior leadership, including the TEDs of agencies in the intelligence community than any time in American history. True. There's also an incoming attorney general. Right, an incoming attorney general whom we can hope will be confirmed by July. But we would understand if the uh, attorney general uh, ha is not yet able to confirm a summer schedule. There are former senior DOD officials like Kath Hicks at CSIS, Michelle Flournoy, Julie Smith, Rosa Brooks. There Anne are Anne Marie Slaughter, Anne Marie Slaughter, right. There are um, current and former members of Congress who have played significant roles in national security. So is it possible yeah, that... Jane Harmon lives in Aspen. <laughs> and to be sure, she did speak at last summer's Aspen Security Forum. So did half these people. Um, so it's, you know, it's not difficult to come up with a list of women one could invite. Um, and I think what's what's striking about this is, as you said, Shane, the gap between the number of women we know are prominent in this field and the number who seem to appear on agendas like this one. Um, and I think, too, it shows us that including women is, at best, an afterthought. Um, You've got people on the confirmed speakers list that include the ambassador of the Kingdom of Spain to the United States and a CNN national security analyst. It's, it's hard for me to imagine that you couldn't get women at that level also, but you have to think about doing it. Right. Um, and I guess this is really the difference is that although women are n not just prevalent but prominent in the field, 
they are still, at least in the minds of the organizers of events like this, not considered on the same level as the men that seem to get invited first to these conferences. So are there minorities uh, on this list? Is, 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 it, is this a, a narrowly gender criticism, or could you make uh, the same argument about you know, race and ethnicity here? I think most of these men I'm looking at are, are white. Most of these guys are white guys. Um, and I think you definitely can make an argument about race and ethnicity, Ben, not just with respect to this event in particular, but with respect to the broader problem in our field of national security. There's tremendous underrepresentation. But I think the gender issue is different from the race and ethnicity issue in that we've seen tremendous progress in what we call the pipeline problem, getting women into the field, moving them up into senior levels so that they exist at all levels, whereas we still have a huge pipeline problem, um, certainly in the academic track, but also in the, in the government track uh, for racial and ethnic minorities. So the pipeline, you know, you need to have people in the pipeline in order for them ultimately to, you know, rise to a level of experience and seniority that they're going to end up on a conference agenda. Um, so the pr there is a problem with race and ethnicity. I just think it's a somewhat different problem. The problem here with women is a consciousness problem. It's not that there aren't women. There are tons of women. The guys who are putting together the conference agendas just aren't inviting them. And we and we have to. I mean, well, one will hope that they would not get to. I mean, it is five months away. If we're giving them a little bit of benefit of the doubt. I can't imagine that they're actually going to have the final list when there's not a single woman. So we'll, you know, but if we're looking at the list as it exists now, it's going to, it seems like it's going to be very, very heavily weighted. And I'm with you. I mean, this is, it's not even just a question in my mind of, you know, balance. There are many women running agencies right now. The head of the National Reconnaissance Office is a woman. Uh, the, recently, the deputy director of the CIA, woman. Um, I'm missing National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. I think is or was just run by a woman. Um, it, it, it's 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 a phenomenal kind of thing. There was actually a st story from three years ago that someone told me where <clears throat> um, Diane Feinstein, when she was the head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, had convened. I think it was like a deputy levels meeting to come up and sort of do a global threats kind of thing. And as she's gaveling the hearing, she looks at everyone who has all the witnesses, and she stops and she goes, "I'm pretty sure this has never happened. Every single witness at this table is female." Well, and, and they all kind of looked at each other and they went, yeah, you're right. And I've talked to women about this. It wasn't planned. It was just there's a moment where they have come up through the pipeline and they are now here and they are in charge. I mean, look, <laughs> there is, and Dianne Feinstein herself is a yeah. good example of that, you know, having uh, the outgoing chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee in the context of the battles that she has fought, both with and on behalf of the intelligence community over the last couple of years would not have been a crazy thing for the Aspen Security Forum to have thought about. And, you know, the other, the other one who, as far as I know, has never been invited to speak in, in a context like this is Avril Haines, which is mystifying because she's only spent the last few years as deputy director of the CIA. And I think the number of people who don't know her name is probably itself shocking. And um, she's now in it's the White true. House. Yes, and she's, she's now, now Deputy National Security Advisor. So, hey, Aspen, invite her to yeah. your conference. 
Um, I, and, you know, Shane, you're right. We have to be fair. Last year, when Aspen uh, produced its preliminary list, I believe it had one or two women on it. And the final tally they did, after hearing some criticism, come up with seven women on their final agenda, which included about 30 or so speakers. Okay. Um, but I would say that given the representation of women in the field, that's still a pretty sad outcome. But more to the point, I think that it says something about where uh, inclusion or where reflecting the reality of the field fits in their priority list for putting together their conference. As you said, heads of agencies should be, yeah. you know, top invitees. And if your first 19 names are all guys, it means that you probably only invited one or two women. Right, because let's establish that anyone who is given an invitation to speak at the Aspen Security Forum is going to say yes. It's not to that they To go were... to Aspen in exactly. July and enjoy the Look, weather. It's not they asked 10 women yes. who said, no, sorry, I'm unavailable. Right. There, there's, another, there's another person whose name probably warrants mention, which is that which is Janet Napolitano. Yeah. You know, she who, runs the University of California who runs the, system. These days is running the University of California system, but it would be... She it, might have a thing or two to say about Homeland Security. Well, and it would be interesting <laughs> to know what the rate of... In, there are two, in the history of the Department of Homeland Security, there are two absolutely dominant figures in its development. One is Michael Chertoff, and the other is Janet Napolitano. And it would be... And they're both now former... And right. Well, Aspen, you're one for two because you third. have shirt off. There's a third, Jane Hall Lute, who is mm. Napolitano's deputy. Right. And Quite it, would be, so. it would be really interesting to know what the relative rate of invitations to yeah. places like the Aspen Security Forum is between the two of them. A very yeah. good question. All right. Uh, it's time for object lessons, show and tell. Um, ben, why don't you go first? What's your object this week? Well, so my object this week is... Uh, uh, and it will. This will come back as a as, as a as a wordplay later. But in its capacity as an object, my book showed up this week. Woot! Um, uh, this is a book that I've written with uh, the estimable Gabby Bloom of of Harvard Law School. It is called "The Future of Violence: uh, Robots and Germs, Hackers and Drones Confronting a New Age of Threat." And um, Full disclosure, uh, the object itself is still not in my hands, but the yesterday um, my editor at Basic Books, the estimable Lara Heimer, tweeted out that she uh, had physical possession of the book and, and, and included a picture of it. So it now exists, and anybody who's listening to this who enjoys this podcast should certainly, as an act of civic devotion, uh, buy a copy and a copy for a friend as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it has a very scary-looking robot spider on the cover, I And a real say. spider. Yes. One real spider and one robot spider. How do spider. you know? That's the mm. point. When one shows up in your bathroom, uh, <laughs> how do you know? This is how we start Chapter 2 of the book. When you see a spider in your bathroom, how do you know if it is A, a real spider, B, uh, a robotic uh surveillance device or see an attack spider mm. that can inject lethal poison into you and then self-destruct before the FBI shows I don't up. know, man. I'm just going to slam it with a shoe. That's, that's, right. that's what Gabby said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, tomorrow, what is your object? Okay, well, I have a wonderful photograph here of... Uh, a gentleman that I fear I will not have the pleasure of seeing while I'm in Israel next week. I'm going to see many uh, political 
candidates, but not Ellie Shai. Uh, Ellie Shai is the former head of Shas, which was the Sephardic uh, ultra-Orthodox party in Israel, but he was ousted as the head of Shas and formed a new party called Ha'am Itanu, the, the nation is with us, uh, to run and compete with his former colleagues in the parliament. But um, he, what's interesting here is that there's sort of a struggle um, in Israeli politics, first over the legacy of Rav Ovadia Yosef, the the late chief Sephardic rabbi who was the patron of the Shas party, uh, and now Yishai and his rival Arya Deri are fighting over his legacy. But there's also a fight going on over where the ultra-Orthodox in Israel fit into the political spectrum. And part of the, the argument between Yishai and Deri is about that. This week, um, and the reason that I brought this photo, Yishai uh, announced a joint ticket with an extreme right-wing party, Otzma Yehudit, the Jewish Power Party. Uh, and uh, these guys are so extreme that the head of Otzma Yehudit, Baruch Marzel, was just um, denied the ability to run for parliament by a judicial panel, which is supposed to prevent people who are explicitly racist uh, or inciting violence from running for parliament. Israel has one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get one of those? Yeah, that would be a nice thing to get, but it's... Uh, <laughs> But it's a, a legacy of Mayor Kahana uh, and his racist, violent party. Um, so Yishai has teamed up with these extreme right-wingers. And I think this says something about what's happened to the ultra-Orthodox in Israel. It used to be assumed that they were a swing. They were all about getting the resources from the state. And they would join a left-wing government or a right-wing government. They didn't have strong views about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the negotiations. They would go where the money was. I think what this Yishai Otsmayudit uh, alliance shows is that a lot of ultra-Orthodox are not just comfortable, but happy to align themselves on the right and even the hard right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is bad news, of course, for uh, Isaac Herzog and the Labor Party, who would hope to have the ultra-Orthodox as part of a majority coalition to oust current Prime Minister Netanyahu. So... I'm really excited about going on this trip so that I can see these dynamics up close and personal. Um, but uh, I think this little picture here of Eli Yishai with a, uh, an homage shrine to Rav Avadio Yosef in the background just shows you one slice of uh, the Israeli political yeah. campaign. And are, they, are the Orthodox parties, are they generally, is their big issue national security or like so much of the election lately, it's becoming about domestic politics, which is... Kind of unusual for Israel. Well, if I can use an entirely inappropriate uh, reference Please in do. context, they are all about the pork. No, <laughs> <laughs> these are um, these tend to be the ultra orthodox community in Israel. Have very large families. The men, if they can, uh, don't work. They study Torah in yeshiva, uh, and as a result, these are very poor families. Many of them. Uh, and they rely on social welfare from the state. And the huge socioeconomic inequality, um, the argument has been that the middle class is bearing the brunt of paying subsidies to the ultra-Orthodox. So. Yeah, this is what I was so interested when I was briefly in Israel in December, was getting educated about that and realizing that there is this huge domestic policy, socioeconomic conversation going on there that's not all that different maybe from ones we're having here. But 
uh, more concentrated, perhaps, too. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so my object I could not actually bring in because it's a little too big is my television set. Mm. My in my basement, my Samsung Smart TV. It's watching you. It's watching me. It <laughs> While is you're watching Frank Underwood, exactly. it's watching you. Exactly. Well, I'm, you know, I couldn't like, possibly comment. I couldn't <laughs> possibly comment. But if I did comment while I was giving voice commands to my Samsung Smart TV. Wait, you talk to your TV? You can talk to this and TV. And it listens? It will listen to you. Not only will it listen to you, but whatever you say when you're giving it commands, it will transmit to a third party according to the Samsung privacy policy, which I read about last week on this TV. Basically, you're supposed to be able to talk to the, and I don't do this, by the way, because I pick up the damn remote. But you can talk to the TV and say things like, you know, play episode five of Downton Abbey, which you might do. And if you are at the same time, you know, talking to your husband or talking smack about your mother-in-law or complaining about <laughs> the neighbor, whatever, it will pick this up. And this, this privacy policy says very clearly... We advise customers to be aware that any personal information you may be that may be coming out of your mouth also is going to this third party, and the third party is taking the voice commands and figuring out how to better use the TV, make it more efficient, whatever. But the fact that they had to warn people about this was rather shocking. I have to say, I wrote this story last week, not on a lark, but I did really not think it was going to do a lot of you know traffic for the Daily Beast. It's easily. The story that in the past two weeks that I've gotten the most response to, right? The spy and been, TV And I've been story. writing about ISIS, for God's sake. Yeah. You know, and the spy TV, people are just flipping out about it. Well, that. I think we should just make a point of buying spy TVs for all the ISIS people. The see? Just ship them en masse. I never should have written about it. I should have just been just like, mm -hmm. ISIS, you know, get a smart TV. Big smart TV shipments to, mm -hmm. they'll all sit around watching TV, totally. they'll be talking, they're and anything they say, they'll, they'll totally watch it. They make videos, they're going to watch the videos. Anything they say will get reported to <laughs> a third party <laughs> in Fort Meade, Maryland. <laughs> all right, that brings us to the end of our show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you download podcasts. And when you're there, please, please leave a rating. It is the best way for you, for, for us to hear about what you like, what you don't like, and importantly, for other people to find the joy that is Rational Security. You can follow us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. Our editor of the podcast is Jen Howell. Our music is performed by Jim Clapper and his bros. No, I'm kidding. You know that's not true. It's performed by Sophia Yan, as always. On behalf of Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, who you can also find on Twitter, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.